0: Hello, everyone. My name is Rutik Shinglot with UCLA Radio. Welcome to Left on Red News. This show is a weekly roundup of the news that you probably swipe past that you can listen to while writing a paper, grocery shopping, or even committing tax fraud. You choose. Make sure to follow at Left on Red News on Instagram and listen to the live show Mondays at 4 p.m. on uclaradio.com. Without further ado, cue the music. Let's get started. States are working to redraw their district lines after the 2020 census resulted in a reallocation of the 465 seats in the House of Representatives ahead of the 2022 midterms. Since each seat is meant to represent about the same number of voters, California lost a seat after the state's population dropped a record 170,000 residents, who cited no longer wanting to spend their entire paycheck to live in a shoebox and instead bravely live nearer to Ted Cruz in Texas, which gained two seats after the census. It's clear the Founding Fathers didn't anticipate the U.S. ever having 370 million people, because states creating districts by having their voters line up and say a number out loud, like we're back in middle school, doesn't really work anymore. Instead, state legislators propose and pass district maps in many states. Parties with control of their state legislatures are able to gerrymander districts by drawing funky lines and creating maps where their party controls a disproportionate number of seats relative to the votes that party received. Some states have adopted independent voting commissions to ensure their district lines are fair, But in some states where a party has a pretty good majority of the seats on the legislature, you get districts looking like Rorschach tests to either fit the opposite party's voting block into one district or splitting it up so opposite party voters are the minority in every district, meaning they never win a seat. After the state legislature of Louisiana put almost every major city into one district, I can't tell if Louisiana's second congressional district looks like a drunk frat guy's piss stream or the tiny little dragon from Mulan. Alabama's map was recently struck down by a district court after it found that the map violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which prohibits election laws discriminating based on race. The court found that Alabama Republicans, who control a supermajority of the state legislature, had created a map that disenfranchised black voters, packing them into a single district. Black voters make up more than a quarter of Alabama's population, but this map gives them only one solid seat out of seven. In fact, the ruling to have the map stricken down came through a three-judge panel, with two of the judges being appointed by none other than President Trump, writing a 225-page decision on just how fucked up the map was, and ordered the legislature to submit a new map that gave black voters a chance to win a second district. The state of Alabama appealed the ruling to the Supreme Court, arguing that creating another district where black voters had the opportunity to elect their chosen representative was in itself a violation of the state's quote-unquote race-neutral criteria and therefore racist. Ironic, because this race-neutral criteria was exactly what got us here in the first place. Justice Brett Kavanaugh of the Supreme Court, summoned by the artificial fear of anti-white racism, who hasn't read more than 200 pages ever, hit the district court with a, I'm not reading all of that, I'm happy for you though, or sorry that happened, and subsequently overturned the lower court's ruling with a 5-4 majority, being joined by four conservatives on the Supreme Court. While the case is pending a full SCOTUS review in October, it means Alabama's map will stand in the 2022 election. This ruling not only guts decades of precedent that protected the voting rights of millions of black and brown Americans, but it also undermines the credibility of the Supreme Court itself, further proving it to be a political arm of the far-right conservatives meant to preserve their power instead of the impartial court it was designed to be. Who could have anticipated paying $100 million to get exclusive rights to Joe Rogan's podcast would cause a problem for Spotify? Because after almost two years of signing the deal, Spotify is under fire for platforming vaccine misinformation through Rogan's generally mediocre show for boasting 11 million listens per episode. After 270 doctors and scientists wrote an open letter to Spotify demanding the company do something about Rogan, spreading dangerous and blatantly misleading information, artists like Neil Young and Joni Mitchell pulled their music from the platform. The doctors and scientists were particularly concerned with individuals like Dr. Robert Malone, who's already banned from Twitter for spreading vaccine misinformation, having the ability to speak to millions of listeners. It got worse for Joe after artist Inda Airy posted a mashup of Joe Rogan saying the N-word dozens of times on his show. The podcaster released an apology on Instagram saying that the use of the word was taken out of context and that he never realized it was improper for him to do so. In 12 years of Joe Rogan asking dumb fucking questions, I am appalled that none of them included asking a black person if he could say the N-word. Nonetheless, over 100 episodes of the Joe Rogan experience have been removed from Spotify since, spanning 12 years of Rogan's show. Spotify's CEO announced an investment of $100 million for the licensing, development, and marketing of music and audio content from historically marginalized groups, emphasizing the company's commitment to continue paying artists absolutely nothing for streams in order to have a big enough buffer for its racism fines. Also, I'm really concerned about the intern that was forced to listen to hours and hours of the Joe Rogan experience to flag certain episodes. Someone should really check in on them. UCLA's campus was transformed over Super Bowl weekend as the Bruins hosted the Cincinnati Bengals to use the university's athletic facilities and prepare for the big game. Multiple buildings were rebranded with the orange and black stripes as guards with drug dogs were stationed around campus to ensure the Robling block party didn't find its way to the Luskin Conference Center where the players were staying. Bruin Walk was blocked off multiple times a day when the players went to and from practice, causing me to be late to class multiple times and have that awkward interaction when you sprint into lecture, like panting and glistening with sweat, and everyone turns around to look at you as you scurry to find a seat. And it wasn't even worth it, because not only did they never let me pet the drug dogs, the Bengals didn't even win. Kid Cuddy and Nelly performed in Polly Pavilion at the Bengals after party, but Joe Burrow was seen in the bathroom the entire time listening to Marvin's room on repeat. This February 14th marks the fourth year anniversary of the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School shooting in Parkland, Florida. Four years ago, the lives of 17 students and faculty members were taken in one of the most pivotal moments for young Americans. From this tragedy in Parkland rose inspiring young leaders who organized the single largest protest against gun violence in history, and sparked an awakening in young America that continues to this day. The March for Our Lives was a turning point for our generation. Young Americans across the country began to understand the power of collective action and how essential it was to have our voices heard if we wanted to see change. We've seen what complacency can lead to, and today, young voices are some of the loudest in advocacy. However, since then, we've continued to lose tens of thousands of Americans every year to gun violence, as the federal government has done little to pass even common-sense gun reform. Manny Oliver, father of Joaquin Oliver, who was killed in the shooting in Parkland, climbed a crane near the White House on the anniversary of the shooting and hung a banner that said 45,000 people had been killed by gun violence since President Biden's inauguration. He and many of Joaquin's former classmates have been champions of preserving the memory of those who lost their lives and using their grief as a call to action. Similarly, we must continue advocating for those voices who were silenced in our households, our classrooms, and in our government. We must remain vocal for universal background checks, bans on high-capacity magazines, and proper mental health care. We can't accept these tragedies as a normal occurrence in our country. We are against a system that is designed to be difficult to change. But I have hope that we are going to be the ones to secure a better future for ourselves and our children, and ensure that tragedies like the one we hold in our hearts today happen never again. Rest in peace to the 17 lives we lost on February 14th, four years ago today. And rest in peace to the thousands of lives we've lost to preventable gun violence since then. We'll never stop fighting for you. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode. I'll see you next week.